say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A strange spiralling white light was spotted in the early morning sky over Sydney with even sceptical witnesses wondering if it was a UFO. They were last seen on the beach with a tall man and that's the best description police have ever had of him. More than 17 years after Harold Holt disappeared into raging surf at Cheviot Beach, his widow has finally revealed his last romantic words. Docking, terrifying, mesmerising. That's the way a number of Australians have described their alleged encounter with the Yowie. It's time for the Weird Crap in Australia podcast. Welcome to the Weird Crap in Australia podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Soule. Joining me, of course, for another episode into the strange and macabre is the researcher extraordinaire herself, Holly Soule. Just in case I forget to mention it, it's episode 234. Hi, everyone. How you doing, Holly? I'm good. How are you doing? I think I'm still hungover from like two days ago. Halloween, yeah. <laughs> Combined with a ridiculous lack of sleep, which is, uh, you know, the constant life of a semi-insomniac. I often find this, it's cyclical. It's like three days of good sleep, two days bad sleep. And, it just and then you start around. again. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about a strange event that kicked off an entire murder mystery. Uh, to not bury the lead too much, the title of today's episode is The Arm in the Shark Murders. So, Holly, let's get into it. On April 18, 1935, a 14-foot-long bull shark, occasionally reported as a tiger shark, was entangled in fishing nets in Maruba Beach, much to the surprise and delight of onlookers. Now, if you're not aware of what a bull shark is, uh, here's a little clip we found from the internet describing the little bastards in all of their glory. Researchers have confirmed 100 bull shark attacks. But the real number may be much higher because the bull shark is so difficult to identify. When you first look at a bull shark, it doesn't really jump out at you that it's a bull shark. It just kind of looks like other sharks. Yeah, kind of grayish brown on top, white below. That's really different from an iconic species like the tiger shark that has that really square head and those stripes that set it apart from any other species. Then you also have white sharks. Nobody's going to mistake a white shark. This is a really iconic look. You have the torpedo shape, the tail, the bright white belly, slate gray above. The bull shark's looks aren't showy or iconic. But if you know what to look for, you'll never forget it. When you really start to look closer at the bull sharks, you see some features that differ from typical shark shape. They 
almost look like swimming mounds at times. They're really thick from those pectoral fins forward, you know, huge jaws, and then they've got the musculature to back that up. Bert and Ron Hobson, the unlucky fishermen, hauled the animal up into their boat and, not knowing what to do with it, sold it. The most logical solution was to sell the animal to their local aquarium. Or they could have just, I don't know, put it back in the water. It was entangled and it's 1930s. Uh, Curiosities are all the rage. I suppose so. That is very true. You think about all the travelling freak shows and things like that. The animal, one of the largest specimens, was transferred to Coogee Aquarium, where it was put on display for the delight of tourists and visitors. The shark was lacklustre, swimming listlessly and unsure of where it was or what its life had become. The thing about sharks is that the way they oxygenate themselves, they have to have pretty consistent flowing water over their gills. One of the interesting things that you'll see out in the wild is if a shark is sleeping, for example, and they're not moving too fast against the current, they'll actually open their mouths up and uh, open and closed and the re- they, they, in this sort of gaping motion, and they do it. Uh, because they're trying to oxygenate their body. It's like their their brain is grasping for air. And that's how they sleep. That's why they're angry all the time. They never get good sleep, just like Matthew. The shark was kept in a concrete pool, as was the style at the time, and swam around in circles, distressed. On the afternoon of Anzac Day, April 25, the Randwick police were summoned to the aquarium to the bull shark's tank. The three visitors to the tank at the time had been treated to the sight of the bull shark stirring the water into foam before regurgitating its stomach contents into the water. Which my understanding is sharks also do that when they're in uh, moments of great stress, right? Or they're sick? Uh, Distressed, sick, sometimes if they're trying to escape if they're a little one, um, but most of the time they try not to. When they swallow shit that they shouldn't, such as, you know, tires or number plates and stuff like that, I remember the Simpsons doing something along these lines, they will just, like, vomit it up because they can't digest it. There's no point keeping it in their stomachs. Yeah. The trash cans of the ocean. (laughs) Well, some would say garbage disposal, except they don't actually eat very much. It depends on which part of Bondi that they're feeding off of. (laughs) (laughs) Alongside some random fish bones and the remains of another, smaller shark, there was something far more creepy floating in the tank. The police closed the exhibit to further examine the floating object the shark had regurgitated, which had perturbed so many onlookers. Visitors to Coogee Aquarium were horrified this afternoon when a 14-foot shark on exhibition suddenly threshed the water to foam and disgorged a human arm. The limb was that of a man and had the tattooed picture of a boxer upon it and a piece of rope tied around the wrist. The arm was in a comparatively good state of preservation and the teeth marks of the monster were visible near the shoulder where it had been wrenched from the victim's body. Only a few people were present when the ghastly exhibit appeared. The arm had been in the stomach of the shark for long enough that the fingerprints were almost entirely digested. The CIB, the Criminal Investigation Bureau's fingerprinting experts, were called in with the hope that they could pull some kind of usable prints from the waterlogged, decomposing flesh, even if it was only a partial. By one chance in a million, the fact that little more than a week ago, a sick shark in captivity at Coogee Aquarium disgorged a tattooed human arm. Some of the best brains of the Sydney CIB are convinced that fate has revealed a cold-blooded murder which, like the case of the 
Aubrey Pajama Girl may prove to be another perfect crime. Didn't turn out to be perfect crime, but go back to that episode if you wanted to know. More about the Pajama Girl. The arm had a distinct tattoo, which may end up being more useful than the half-decomposed fingerprints. The tattoo was that of a boxer with his fists raised in a defensive pose. The mass of the tattoo was made in purple, the usual colour, while the shorts were done in red. In an era where tattoos were not seen on most people, having a tattoo would make someone stand out and limit the world that that victim came from. As always, the Truth newspaper, being ever ironic, reported a different account to other media outlets. They reported that the tattoo was actually of two boxes facing off and not one. The chief medical officer, Dr. Palmer, was handed the arm so that they could determine the age and possible background of the victim to help narrow down the search for the victim's identity. Since the discovery of the gruesome specimen, police worked to determine identity of the victim or perhaps bring some closure to a distraught family. Police reported last night that the body of Ernest Lawrence Duggan of Kensington was found floating near the rocks of Cornell about six weeks ago, with the left arm and right arm from the elbow missing. Detectives in charge of the investigations, however, expressed the opinion that the arm could not have maintained its present state inside a shark for such a long time. There was also the unfortunate fact that the arm from the shark contained the upper arm as well as the elbow, while Duggan was only missing his forearms. There was a piece of rope attached to the wrist. By this, the arm was pulled from the water. The rope was about two feet long. It was attached to the wrist in two neat half hitches, as if the work of a naval man. Examination showed it to be a left arm, which had been torn out at the shoulder joint. The rope itself was not a sign of foul play, according to the Daily Telegraph. Using some logic that escapes me, they assert... The rope is believed to have used to bind the wrist, but foul play is not feared. It being known that frequently suicides bind their wrists together in this way. I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a drowning suicide that bound their wrists together. The only type of drowning suicide I've ever heard of is where you purposely hold on to something very heavy. Or you put rocks in your pockets. Yeah, you know, so that you're not going to uh, float back up uh, or decide halfway through that you don't want to go through with it. But I have never heard of people binding their hands, which I would imagine in itself to bind your hands properly would be a rather difficult proposition. You'd have to have a good knot that's going to uh, hold up against the water. So, yeah, it's a very interesting conclusion that they came to being the old, uh, the newspapers of the 30s. It uh, it shouts mafia suicide to me. <laughs> uh, I always think concrete boots. Swimming with the fishes. <laughs> Mr. D.G. Stead, an expert of fishers, was quoted as saying that the digestive system of a shark would result in the arm being completely digested within 36 hours, but the change in the shark's environment, from sea to aquarium, could suspend the digestion process. There was also the possibility that the arm had been preserved in formalin or some other preserving agent at some hospital, and being thrown into the sea amongst waste. In this case, the hardening fluids might easily inhibit indigestion for a week. The third possibility came with what else was disgorged from the shark's body. When the shark disgorged its gruesome find, the bull shark also regurgitated parts of a smaller shark, which were floating around in the tank as well when the police arrived. The arm could have been eaten by the smaller shark, which was then eaten by the larger shark within 12 hours of its find. There's always a bigger fish. 
If that happened, the digestive process in the smaller shark stopped and the larger shark's stomach began its work on the smaller shark, which acted as a shield around the arm. Within a few days, another murder was referenced in the news of the day, one that you may recognise. If the police succeed in establishing, by fingerprints, the identity of the victim whose arm was disgorged by a shark in the Coogee Aquarium Bass last week, the feat will be an even greater triumph than that achieved in the now-famous human glove murder at Wagga Wagga. We mentioned that when we did The Pajama Girl as well. I've now put it on the list to be done somewhere in the early new year. We always get to them. Yep. The fingerprints taken from the arm were just usable as an identification, and the owner had a police record which made the process so much easier. Remember that 1935 is the era where everyone's fingerprints were taken by ink and all of them were examined under a microscope one by one on cards. Yeah, there's a question as to the accuracy of people being to, able to you know, identify fingerprints because what they would do is they were, uh, they were eyeballing certain curvatures and then trying to compare, contrast them with, with other fingerprints and match up those curvatures. The easiest way to do it by eye is if you put a fingerprint on, you know, the overhead projectors, the yep. clear plastic sheets, yep. fingerprint there, and then you've got the fingerprint that you've got from, say, the body, put it on another sheet, and lay them over the top and see whether or not you can get them to line up. Yep. That's the easiest way to do it by eye. Back then, they didn't have overhead projectors or plastic sheets, mostly. <laughs> Magnifying glass and uh, as much light as possible. Yeah. James Smith was a police informer working with a group of Sydney underworld figures. His tattoo was positively identified by his wife, Gladys Smith, and his brother, Edward Smith. He'd been missing since early April. The victim of this mysterious death drama is James Smith of Gladsville, former billards marker at City Tattersalls? Yep. At City Tattersalls Club, a well-known suburban billards saloon keeper, one-time promising lightweight boxer, and a man with seemingly not an enemy in the world. Which directly contradicts he was a police informer working with the underworld. (laughs) Examination of the arm by the medical officers revealed that the arm was severed by a knife, not teeth, making this a murder investigation. A man told the police today that his brother, James Smith, who had a tattoo mark on the arm similar to that on the limb disgorged by the shark at the Kuji Aquarium, could not be found at his old haunts. On April 12, his brother had asked him to go fishing at Cronulla, but he could not go. The shark died today. We'll be opened up for fresh clues. On April 28, the shark was actually killed, then dissected, in the hope that they could find more clues in its belly. This was against the wishes of the police, who were sure the shark had not swallowed anything else. The shark had been eating again after its tank was cleaned out. Nevertheless, the aquarium owners didn't want the fish in their aquarium anymore because, you know, morbid curiosity. And so, instead of releasing it back into the wild, decided that the best course of action was to kill it. Yeah, typical attitude when it comes to uh, this sort of thing. Uh, This day and age, though, it would have been quite popular. There's a current industry out there called death tourism, uh, where people make sure that they're organising their holidays around visiting places like famous murder crime scenes, death cults, all this sort of thing. So Visiting, uh, you know, Belongalo Forest. Yes, absolutely, Snowtown. So if this, uh, if this aquarium had existed today, Holly, they could have been their own little uh, death 
uh, tourist attraction. Police did the legwork, putting the feelers out to the criminal element for a possible suspect who could have been involved in the murder of Smith. As he was a police informant, his suspect list was ridiculously long, so detectives had to work to narrow down who did it. Sydney policeman Reginald Holmes, such an English name, was one such name on the list. The man was famous for being a fraudster and a smuggler who also managed to run a successful boat building business in Lavender Bay. Holmes had employed Smith a few times to run insurance scams, including one in 1934 that involved an overinsured cruiser that sank near Terrigal. Mrs. G.L.J. Smith gave evidence of meetings with Reginald William Holmes, boat builder of McCannon's Point. She stated that she had asked him to lend her some money and received five pounds in an envelope. She had seen an entry in a black pocketbook carried by her husband that Holmes owed him £60 or £65, but she did not know how the debt was incurred. In reply to Mr. Evett for Brady, Mrs. Smith said she had received £45 from her husband after the yacht Pathfinder sank in April 1934. They did the conversion. £45 in the 30s is somewhere in the vicinity of a grand. It's not... Okay, so it's it's money, but it's not crazy money. It's definitely something I'd go, where the hell did you get a grand from? I found it in my back pocket. That's where I keep it. It sank out in the sea. Wait, I wasn't meant to say that. Damn it. <laughs> Smith and Holmes then rejoined a racketeering ring alongside Patrick Brady, who was both ex-serviceman and convicted forger. Holmes used his legitimate business with boats to steal the signatures from his friends and clients, Brady would forge checks for small amounts, and Smith would cash them. Something went south, however, and Smith turned on his one-time friends, eventually blackmailing Holmes. Smith was last seen playing cards with Brady at the Cecil Hotel, not the one in the US. Yeah, the infamous Cecil Hotel, where people have ended up disappeared into the water tanks, only to be found weeks later and one of the infamous stomping grounds of the serial killer Richard Ramirez. is actually quite a creepy little documentary on Netflix that you can go check out. But that name is rather infamous. I always think of Cecil and think, ah, oh, this, this place is not somewhere I want to be, especially if the word hotel is after it. The Cecil Hotel in Cronulla on April 7, 1935. He told his wife he was going fishing, but instead went out drinking. Brady rented a cottage in Tulumbi Street at the time Smith went missing, which was how he came to be in the same suburb as the man. Brady convinced Smith to come home with him for more beer, possibly something a little bit more illegal. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brady was arrested on May 16 and charged with Smith's murder. Christmas is coming. And wouldn't it be nice to make that special someone happy? Our sponsor, Impact Comics, wants to help you make Christmas dreams come true this year with free shipping on your first order using promo code WCIA. Impact Comics delivers comics and graphic novels Australia-wide, and their standing order service means that you will never miss an issue. And I should know. I use their standing order service myself. Plus, they stock a huge range of pop culture merch from pop vinyls to clothing and beyond. They really are your one-stop shop for all things geeky. So whether your special someone is a Batman fanatic like myself or surrounds themselves in piles of My Hero Academia manga, then Impact Comics has you covered. For more info, head to impactcomics.com.au or visit them at 16 Garima Place in Canberra and don't forget to use promo code WCIA for free shipping on your first order. Now, back to the show. A taxi driver came forward to say he'd taken Brady from Cronulla to McMahon's Point, where Holmes lived. A key link for the police in their investigations was information they got from a cab driver who was located at Cronulla. On the morning after Jim Smith was seen for the last time, Brady turned up at the cab driver's home and wanted a ride into Sydney. He was dishevelled. He had a hand in a pocket and wouldn't take it out. He got in the cab and they drove through towards Sydney. And as the cab driver was able to give evidence on later, it was clear that Brady was frightened. He kept looking out the back window, fearful that somebody was following him. And then finally, he came to North Sydney and he got the cab driver to pull up outside of the home of Reginald Lloyd Holmes. Holmes denied any association with Brady. However, on May 20, Holmes went into his boat shed and attempted suicide with a .32 pistol. The bullet, however, flattened against his skull and he was simply stunned. After falling, uh, It's rather bad luck that you have a real hard time shooting yourself in the head. If you're going to do it, use a bigger gun. Or put it under your chin. Not but, that I am advocating anyone shooting themselves for suicide. I'm just saying that there are guaranteed options. It's uh, One of the most tragic circumstances uh, of American gun ownership is the crazy suicide statistics they have. And every now and again, I've come across a story where someone has like blown off their jaw, but haven't killed themselves. So they've had to have, you know, prosthetics and reconstructions and stuff like that done. It's Twisty the Clown. American Horror Story, Twisty the Clown. That's right. I was trying to remember it on Saturday night. (laughs) Yes, Twisty the Clown. He shot off half his face, didn't he? Yeah, he kind of fucks himself up. (laughs) After falling into the water, he led two police boats on a chase around Sydney Harbour until he was caught and taken to hospital. It wasn't until early June that police broke homes and he began working with police on Smith's murder. He told Detective Sergeant Frank Matthews that Brady killed Smith, dismembered his body and threw it into a trunk which he dropped into Gunnamatta Bay. Port Hacking and Gunnamatta Bay were searched by the RAAF and the Royal Australian Navy, but the rest of Smith's body was never found. Holmes then claimed Brady came to his home, showed him the arm, and threatened to murder him if he did not receive £500 immediately. He did it in a very cartoony way where he used the arm to actually poke 
him in the in the chest after slapping him with it. Yep, after yeah, exactly after slapping him with it like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, ca- ca- cartoon. I don't know about you, but I don't have fifty two thousand dollars just laying around the house to give to somebody when they start blackmailing me. I have a house that's worth over fifty two thousand dollars, but yeah, I definitely don't. Well, not that you know about, anyway. It's under the mattress, isn't it? Damn it! <laughs> Foiled again. Holmes admitted that when Brady left his home, he took the arm to Maruba and threw it into the water. On June 11, 1935, Holmes withdrew the 500 pounds from his account and left home late in the evening to meet someone. He was cautious as he left, maybe even described as paranoid, and clomped into his sedan for the trip. On June 11, her husband told her he was going to see Standard at 2 o'clock, and Mr. Kincaid, solicitor, later. He was to see Kincaid about the inquest on James Smith to be heard next day. He arrived home at 10 minutes to 6, later went out saying he would be home about half past 9, and asking her not to worry. On June 12, his body was found inside his car on Hickson Road, Doors Point, shot three times at close range, though the perpetrator tried to make it look like a suicide. If you shoot someone more than once, it is not a suicide, okay? You you would be shocked at the amount of cases that have been classed as suicide, Holly, when it's absolutely evident. It's a that, mafia suicide? <laughs> that it's Yeah, that it's a murder and not a suicide. You would be shocked at how – just uh, – you're bored enough on Google, just type in uh, suspicious shooting deaths and you'll see just story after story. I, yeah. I think sometimes there is a compulsion just to wrap things up as quickly as possible just due to a lack of policing resources. The ones that get me are like, yeah, he's shot in the heart and the head and I'm like, neither of both of those would kill him. Yeah. So how is that a suicide? There's a, an infamous Scientology uh, a a Scientology associate, a member of the church. Uh, she was described as very depressed but wanting to leave the church. And then a few days, you know, after sort of she had a rather, you know, vocal outburst, suddenly she had died of suicide by shooting herself in the heart and the shoulder and like the leg and everywhere else except for any vital organs. Suicide. The closest to that you could get is accidental death of, oops, I dropped a machine gun. But <laughs> Like a uh, one of those uh, uh, spoof movies where it just like- Drops it into the- Yep. That's <laughs> not suicide. <laughs> Holmes was due to give evidence into the inquest of Smith's murder later that morning. Leslie William Holmes, launch driver, brother of the dead man, was asked by the coroner whether during the last month or two of his life, his brother ever said anything to him which would lead him to think that his brother was in fear of losing his life. Holmes. Well, he did say that he was frightened of a certain party. Holmes added that his brother said Brady's crowd would get him. Sorry, I'm just going to say the last name of Sherlock. Holmes. How do you pronounce the L? No one pronounces the L in Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. You weirdo. Anyway, it's Holmes. <laughs> Holmes. Holmes' £34,000 or $3.5 million estate was petitioned by his wife. For someone living in the 1930s of Australia, known elsewhere as the Great Depression, 
This was a lot of money, and it's very unlikely that the money hadn't been laundered in one way or another. As we saw when we were examining the career of Farlap, the Australian gang is not a new invention, nor an import from America. Especially around Melbourne and inner Sydney, where the disparity between wealthy and poorest is greatest, gangs were a known problem. Especially during the Great Depression, whenever there is economic hardship, you generally do see a rise in criminal activity. Well, it's got a steal to eat, like Aladdin. (laughs) Mrs. Holmes, questioned by Mr. Barry of the Crown Law Office, said she was the executrix? Executrix. Executrix. Now we just call everyone- Female executor. Yeah. (laughs) And now we all just call it, we just call everyone an executor of the will, uh, of her husband's will. She knew that Standard was appointed by him as executor trustee of his will originally, and that under the will he was to get a fourth share of the undivided residual, sorry, residue of the estate. She also knew at the time the Pathfinder was sunk, Holmes made a codicil, codicil, codicil to that will, that he revoked the appointment of Standard as executor trustee that he also revoked the device to Stannard in an interest in the will. He did not tell her why he had done it. So basically, Stannard had been cut out of the will, which oh. made him a massive suspect. Not a great, not, not, doesn't paint you in the greatest of lights. There are a few different theories put forth as to reason for this murder, including Holmes taking a hit out on himself, and of Smith being outed as an informant and thus taken out as a plan for assassinating the rat. Wait, the, the theory was that he wanted himself assassinated, like suicide by yeah, by that, assassination? Yeah, that Holmes called a hit on himself. Okay. People are weird. People they come are up, weird. They come up with the most convoluted. I know it's me talking, but people <laughs> come up with the most convoluted theories for some things that are really obvious. Yeah, and going back to Looney Tunes cartoon, it's like setting up one of those elaborate traps to catch uh, like Tweety Bird. It's a just, roadrunner. Yeah, or roadrunner. Like it's a, it's a wildly coyote- set of circumstances to get yourself killed. The case for the murder of Holmes was not solved either, though there was a compelling witness as to the responsible party. Now, this will be a little bit long, but it gives you a pretty good point of who probably killed him. Oliver Summons, chiropodist, after answering questions, pointed in covert to Albert Stannard as the man he saw walking away from Hickson Road after he heard some shots on the night of June 11. In his evidence, Summers said that on the evening of June 11, he went to Miller's Point to see a customer. But as the customer was not at home, he went for a walk and was going down some steps leading to Hickson Road when he heard three shots. Looking down, he saw a motor car just below. The lights were on. He thought the car had backfired, so he continued down the steps. He saw a man leave the car and pass the bottom of the steps towards the bridge. The man had something in his hands. Witnesses thought that there was something suspicious and followed him along Hickson Road. He was walking at a good place, but lost him round the bend. When he went to the centre of the road to see if there were any steps up which the man could have disappeared, he heard a rustle of paper to the right, then saw a man wrapping something in paper. He added, We were both very startled. He walked past me a few yards away, had a good look at him and he looked at me and then he went along the street. The coroner. What did you do then? Witness said he came back to where the car was. The lights were still on. He thought it was only a petting party and went back to his apartment. 
He did not know until next day that there had been a murder. He reported his experience to police. A petting party, of course, being... Uh, Where you go parking. Go kissing. <laughs> what do you call it? Parking. Americans call it parking. Oh, parking. Yes. Sorry, I thought you said pucking. I was like, what is that? It's, it's where you're too polite to say <laughs> fucking. <laughs> Passionate fucking. <laughs> Holmes wasn't offered police protective custody prior to the inquest, though he was their star witness. The lawyer for Brady, Clive Everett, King's counsel, claimed that there was no evidence to open a case as there was no body and that Smith could still live without his arm. As a result, the case came to a standstill. Is it, that, That's also a funny one, but it is the truth. Uh, a, a body part does not itself mean a murder. Well, there's there's a trial or something going on at the moment, isn't it? Like a foot was found? Uh, you're, you're talking about the Canadian beach, the infamous Canadian so. beach that- No, uh, no, no. There was, there's a trial going on. Oh, so you're talking about the fraudster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was a Sydney fraudster. I think it was Sydney. Is it Sydney? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was found in Sydney because yeah. we have a history of doing this. So she disappeared and once it, you know her disappearance was reported and then they started looking into her life, of course, as, as the investigation ramped up and it turned out she was a fraudster that was in crazy amounts of debt and her husband didn't know about it. So she went for a, a long walk one morning, never came back. And then recently they found her foot, which was identified via a tattoo, I believe, Holly? I think so, but was DNA was probably also part of it. If she was yeah. added as a fraud, so they would have taken samples and yeah. stuff to, yeah. Absolutely. So they found this foot, and the foot doesn't appear to be, like, severed cleanly. It looks like it was sort of, you know, torn num, and, num. And, and broken. So people, of course, will, will most likely speculate, like – some have suggested that perhaps she cut off her own foot to throw people off. I mean, that's hell, uh, that's a hell of a way to do it. But I suppose if you've got a a, a million or so dollars in money that you've stolen- I can you buy can, a prosthetic. It's yeah, fine. You might be able to get a decent prosthetic. And that, so that's one theory that was offered. And then another was that one of her victims, her fraud victims or organized crime or whoever she was dealing with, uh, they found her and threw her off the cliff after dismembering her. Uh, that she committed suicide and that's her body was eaten by sharks and that's all that was left. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting case that I think uh, we'll never actually see a resolution. Much like this one. Holmes was dead. There was no body, so no proof of murder. The case against Brady collapsed. Stannard was called to court to face charges for Holmes' murder, but he was acquitted. No one ever went to trial for Smith's murder. For 30 years, Brady claimed his innocence and eventually died in hospital at the age of 76. The case is officially unsolved, though police do think they know who was responsible for the original murder and possibly Holmes's too. They just don't have enough evidence to throw it in front of a court. And they were pretty certain that it was not a shark. Yeah, it was knife marks. Sharks, unless they've evolved a lot, they don't have knives. And that's pretty much where we leave the story so not long enough for uh, to be a big episode but definitely not short enough to be one of our minisodes so we thought we'd just uh, do a smaller one as we prepare for the big series that is about to hit and hit hard that of course is the Ausploitation series that's going to be our summer showtime series so stick with us for that I mean uh, we're going to see you all the way through December so go ahead Holly 
was going to say, after three episodes of Midnight Oil and then four episodes of Ausploitation coming up, I'm pretty sure everyone just needs like that tiny little breather one in the middle. And then we can flow back into like hour and a bit long episodes again. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. If you would like to keep the story going, maybe you have a crazy um, found limb encounter we would love to hear about it shoot it well i don't know if we'd love to hear about it. don't send photos if you found it attached to someone and took it home we don't want to hear about <laughs> it but you can let us know all about that via our social media you can find us on facebook our handle is weird crap in australia same as instagram you can also find us on twitter there it is at weird crap in Oz, a US. You can also support the shows in a couple of ways. As Holly mentioned, Midnight Oil, uh, that was a Patreon Selects series. So what we do is our Patreon fans get to participate in a poll. They get to select some of the episodes that we produce. So if you'd like more of a say in the show you love, the easiest way to do that is to sign up to Patreon. If you sign up for more than 12 months, you get a month for free. For the $5 tier, you get even more bonus content, including weekly bonus minisodes, ad-free episodes, and you get ads released a little bit earlier than everybody else. You can also support us by heading to our Redbubble or Tea Public stores. Just type in We Crap in Australia into those search engines. That will bring up our stores, and you can see all those wonderful T-shirt designs by our good mate, Ignacio. Grab yourself a T-shirt or a mug or a, a hoodie or... Well, numerous other things. It's, Redbubble just keeps, seems to be expanding their line more and more and more. You can buy face masks. I think they've introduced dog bowls. It's crazy. And dog bandanas. Dog bandanas. Make your dog as stylish as you. You can get a dog bandana and you could you could have a weird crap in Australia bandana for your dog. Weird crap in Australia shirt. And people will definitely know you're a weirdo. <laughs> they actually do pet bowls now too. Yeah. It's crazy. Absolutely nuts. So you can grab all of that merchandise. Of course, that all goes to supporting the show. And the other way you can support us is by checking out our book series. We Crap in Australia book series is available from brick and mortar stores, impactcomics.com.au. And you can also pick that up from lulu.com. Don't forget with that special promotion at the moment for all our We Crap in Australia listeners, you get your first order from Impact Comics sent to you with free shipping, which is a wonderful deal. So you can get the entire Weird Crap in Australia book series sent to you for free. Well, free shipping. Sent to you with free shipping. Yes. Not for free. you got to pay something for it. That's how you support the show. <laughs> Otherwise, it's piracy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's all the plugging I have to do, Holly. Yes. So I'm going to just like leave this episode with a tiny little PSA. Don't go swimming in Sydney beaches. You will be eaten by a shark. Well, Holly, I'm pretty sure that the Bondi Council may absolutely disagree with you on that particular statement. Well, that's it for us for another week of We Crap in Australia. But please join us again next week as we begin our series on Ozploitation. We will see you then. Bye for now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.